Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soul, and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I get to talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go around is Randy West. He's been a disc jockey, done musicals, infomercials, regular commercials, announced TV shows and game shows, including The Price is Right, uh, and also is an accomplished author. More than that, he's also a huge TV historian, dedicating a lot of time to preserving pieces of our cultural history and a big chunk of nostalgia for me. Randy is also extremely kind and giving of his time and knowledge. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Randy. Randy West, thank you for joining me on the YMI podcast. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I have yeah. run into each other. We are, let's see, where are we? we it's, uh, it's coming up on Thanksgiving right now. So you and I are Black Friday. We're standing out in front of the Best Buy. Uh, uh-huh. We're going to we're gonna be, our, let's do Walmart. That sounds even more precarious. Oh, yeah, we're standing I'll, outside I'll, of the. <laughs> I'll wear my polyester sweats. <laughs> we're getting uh, we're getting to know each other, and uh, we start with me. We talk about me, and we exhaust that. And it's your turn to reciprocate. So, no. who are you? Well, I'm apparently a uh, bargain seeker because I'm out here <laughs> maybe four in the morning on Walmart to try to save forty seven dollars and thirty two cents on a maybe another big screen TV because you can never have enough or big enough TV. You know, I've got so many big screen TVs. I've actually got two in closets because I've just kept upgrading. When the price came down, I went out of my mind. You know, well, let's go for another 10 inches, you know. Uh, so uh, you are standing next to me and you already feel that uh, I'm a guy who likes to talk and likes to meet people and uh, very social, very social. And uh, what can I say about myself? Well, uh, I go slow with it, with the disclosure, because, uh, you know, I'm, hey, I'm new to town here. I'm in Burbank, California. And uh, boy, I uh, haven't been to the store before. Well, I actually was here once to pick up something in a, in a rush. So uh, yeah, new, I'm new in town. And I'll ask about, uh, how'd you end up in Burbank, California? Did you drive here from Waco, Texas, just for the bargain? <laughs> or, uh, or are you local? And uh, yeah, I tend to be slow on self-disclosure until I feel a little uh, comfort level. Because uh, uh, to be honest with you, I was on an airplane yesterday, day before yesterday, and uh, sitting next to a gentleman didn't seem to be particularly talkative. And I, I was just on the tarmac there filling in a little Facebook post about, uh, uh, you know, the experience of where I was, the plane's late and taking off, whatever. I got answered on Facebook today. I never gave the gentleman next to me my name or any information, but he apparently was, what do you call that, shoulder surfing or, or whatever, looking at what I was posting because I, his wife contacted me this morning uh, saying that I should have struck up conversation with her husband because he's such a wonderful guy. I'm like, hello. <laughs> I never had anybody <laughs> insert themselves into my life and that uh, uh, we were on the tarmac so long that they served uh, free vodka, you know, a free drink if you wanted one and uh, yeah i certainly took advantage of uh vodka and uh, mr t's uh, bloody mary mix and uh, i got uh, reviewed by this gentleman's wife on facebook this morning that i should be less <laughs> interested in my in my tito's vodka and mr t i mean she named the brands and everything i don't know exactly <laughs> i mean obviously she's trying to make a point that i should have struck up more you know conversation with her husband because he's such a wonderful guy and you know i again as i say i'm not like mr self-disclosure or somebody you know starts talking with me so i'm just kind of like all of a sudden say hey and talking with you thinking oh boy some people put you under a microscope and they're like watching what you 
writes to yourself basically on Facebook and then critiquing you, you know, days later. So uh, all that's a long way of saying, uh, I'm not going to tell you my life story until I have uh, developed a sense of trust with you. Mm, fair enough. And you know, also like to your, to your defense on a plane, I think that's kind of like the the two foot of space you occupy is yours and you have to like you have to make it known that you want to have conversations, you know. Yeah, there is a thing about personal space and the and the airlines have crushed this in so tightly that I think they violated some some uh, you know biological predisposition to having one's own space. And, uh, you know, it's fine when you strike up, strike up conversation with somebody and it gets to be so, so much fun that you almost wish you weren't landing so quickly. But on other occasions, you know, I had just come off a, a gig. I, I work in a very social environment. I'm dealing with people when I work. So uh, the morning after that, I wasn't necessarily interested in making yet another friend unless the you know, opportunity presented itself easily. So yeah, I was just kind of sitting there quietly and I feel violated. I tell you, I'm violated by this gentleman <laughs> looking at what I'm writing on Facebook. Uh, and, and it's not like I was holding it out here, you know, hey, look what I'm typing. You know, it's a very personal thing. And, uh, uh, and now the wife is contacting me, reviewing my, my, my social and, and, and uh, drinking habits. Uh, like, wow. So uh, yeah, I'm just reinforcing uh, what you said. It's uh it's uh, it's an interesting world there. So we're online now. I'll go back to your scenario here for the uh, Black Friday special at uh, Walmart, and uh, I'm telling you where I'm, I'm from. I lived in uh, Woodland Hills before this, but the commute to uh, to Hollywood and some of the studios was was uh, daunting because uh, traffic gets worse and worse every year. Every every uh, winter when it first snows in places where it snows. People go, my God, they turn on the TV on January 1st and they watch the Rose Bowl game, which happens in Pasadena, California, where it's sunny. I mean, our winter is, uh, I'm freezing right now because it's maybe 65 degrees. And uh, they, you know, they're out of work or uh, looking for a change in their life anyway. And they turn on the TV on January 1st. They just came in from shoveling two feet of snow. And there's people in shirt sleeves in Pasadena, California in the sunshine. So you can count about two weeks for people to pack up. And then all of a sudden, the freeways are heavier every year. Every year, it just seems the traffic gets more so uh, in Southern California. So I uh, would confide in you that I just moved from maybe 20 miles away to uh, to Burbank, which is far more centrally located. And uh, uh, we could talk about uh, things like that, unless you've got uh, some pearl of wisdom to try to take the conversation in a <laughs> different direction. Do you stay pretty private about kind of what you do in your professional life? You think for the most uh, yeah, part? Yeah, because uh, not that there's any shame involved. No, I'm no. Quite, quite proud of, of having been able to establish myself in a, in a career that I love always wanted to do and that most people wish they could do, frankly. And that's, that, I mean, everybody would love to be in television and, and working in that uh, field. But I tend to uh, lay back on that because uh, A, I think maybe it sounds like I'm playing star. Yes, I do this, I did that, I'm the voice of this, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and that's not it at all. Uh, so that's point one. I don't want to come across as like some you know narcissist. And the second half of that, and it might be the first half, actually, the, the larger balance of the two is, um, uh, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to anybody, but the, the questions that get asked at that moment are repetitive. Oh, really? Mm. Tell me, you know, they're all predictable. And I've answered those questions. So there's not a lot of opportunity for me to learn or to experience something new there. So I kind of lay back because it would trigger 
the same litany of, of observations and questions that uh, we've already been there. And I would certainly indulge anyone who had those questions and have, but if I can avoid having to go through that, that's 12 minutes of stand-up. <laughs> you ever thought before. about uh, printing out a business card with all the frequently yeah. asked questions? You could just <laughs> Or just push the button here and listen to the answers. Yeah. <laughs> so well, no, I, was... I don't run around. I don't run around talking about what I do so much. Yeah. It always interests me when people have, um, you know, like I, I guess in their professional life, these very public personas, you know, and they're, they're very outgrowing, but then in their private life, they're they're much more reserved, or or maybe not reserved, maybe more private. I guess keep their private life private. Well, it's an interesting thing, and I uh, I wasn't intending to make this a plug, but I did write several books. This one that happens to be here, just coincidentally, ah, oh, uh, yes, is a big five hundred page tome, which is written over the has been written in my mind over the years of working with high profile celebrities in the world of television. And you make mental notes about, wow, I always thought so-and-so would be like this, but in reality, they're like that. And hmm. some of the most convivial people, outgoing and bubbly personalities and charming tend to be, as you push your finger right on it, uh, withdrawn. Uh, some are sullen, some are obnoxious, some are, if people knew who they really were, would not want to be so interested in watching or listening to them. Uh, so there's two kinds of people. There are the effervescent people who just bring what they are to the television screen. And there's uh, maybe an equal or greater amount of people who turn the switch and make their performance. But when the light goes out, uh, they're back to default setting, which is not necessarily somebody you'd want to spend uh, a great deal of time with. Hmm. And uh, uh, that's what this book is about, backstage stories of, of people who are searching for success in a, a competitive field who are, um, in some cases, even miserable. I'll, I'll go that far. You know, uh, not to take us too far off of the Black Friday bargains at Walmart, uh, which is where we were. Uh, <laughs> Transport me to some other place, because obviously, okay. if I'm there at 4 a.m., I don't want to be there anymore. <laughs> Touche. Uh, you know, it, the default setting for success is money and fame. I mean, just to cut it down to its bottom, most people, if you said, if you could have tons of, I mean, millions of dollars and everyone knew you and all, you know, wanted to say hello to you or, you know, tug on your sleeve or would like to give you the table at the restaurant when other people are in line or, or just, oh, wow, it's nice to meet you. Oh, wow. I mean, that would be the world to most people, money hmm. and popularity. That's it. That's the default setting for success. I think we're all born. If I only had money, I'd be happy. If I had people respected me, I, life would be, a, well, there are thousands of people. I've worked with dozens of them, over a hundred of them who have exactly that. They have everything most people think would make them happy. And they are far from happy. In fact, I'll say some of them are more miserable now having gotten what they thought would make their life a charm. Okay. So, because once you are delivered with money and fame or whatever it is that you're looking for, and it doesn't improve your life, perhaps it even complicates your life. Mm. Uh, now, now what do you do? And that's where you start reading about people and, you know, who are uh, on drugs or alcohol or are looking for extreme experiences. They're, they're, they're having uh, sexual escapades. They're jumping out of airplanes. And I mean, looking for uh, uh, to heighten something that will make them feel more successful or more complete or more fulfilled. I guess fulfillment is probably the best word for that sentence. You know, something that will make me more happy. That's an even more base word. You know, I've got money, I've got fame and I'm miserable. What do I do now? And that's where people fall off the, the rails. 
what do I do now that's going to be extreme or different or change my life? And those thing, things don't generally tend to be positive for you or the people you're associated with. Hmm. So that's what TV Inside Out is all about. It's been 35, 40 years in the making of just watching people that I've had the thrill of working with because when they are, when you're working with them on stage, they're great. I mean, that's why America tunes in to see these people on TV. We love them. We love them. And being with them when they're on is great. But when the lights go off or the stage matters, this is cut. Oh boy, sometimes somebody else comes out of the woods. And that fascinates me as a sociological and psychological kind of thing. Wow, look at that. I mean, it's just, gee, I would never have expected that. And that just, mm. I was a psych major and a, a minor, I should say. Uh, and that kind of always fascinated me. What makes people tick? Yeah, that makes sense that you would, because I was, I was thinking, what would, I mean, anybody that does anything, they're driven for some reason or another. Some, like you said, is driven by money or seeking fame, but why would you collect all these stories unless it truly fascinated you, the, yeah. the juxtaposition of the, the performer versus, you know, the, uh, the person, I right. guess. And, you know, and it also made me think about, um, you know, if money and fame equals success to somebody, once you attain it, like you said, how do you readjust? Because like I, I've learned in life that um, everybody's got a measuring stick that they measure themselves by, right? Like, right. like I'm successful if I do these things or that thing. And what a lot of people don't realize is you're in control of the measuring stick and you get to change what that is. And so if somebody's main goal is seeking money and success and you get that, it's like, what do you think people would pivot to? Like, I mean, I'm assuming you've seen some of those folks. Like if, if you've attained that, now what? Because it's... I mean, that's out of reach, I would say, for the vast majority of the human race. And then once you get that, that really almost unattainable thing, it's like, where do you go from here? That's it. That people tend to go off the rails. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because what else is there? You know, it's, yeah. it's no longer just a fine meal because you've had millions of those, you know, if you're in the public eye and whining and dining with studio heads or, you know, television owners, station owners and stuff like that. So it's not a fine meal, which most people be like, wow, I'm going out Saturday night, going to have this great meal, the one we just described, you know, wow, I'd like to look forward to that. These people are whining and dining at the finest restaurants and, and bitching and moaning about, you know, the, the service wasn't good enough or the, you know, the, the, there was too much uh, anchovy in the Caesar dressing. Let me, <laughs> let me speak to the owner. You know, the, uh, so what do you do? I mean, that's a great question. If I were ever to find myself in the situation that I see these people in, if that sentence isn't too, uh, you know, too convoluted, uh, I would think I would focus more on building relationships. I mean, not real relationships i think you know what i'm talking about you know mm -hmm. a real connection with people because i think that's the one thing we're all missing even if mm. you have a large family and have a million friends or a zillion followers on facebook like that's going to make you happy uh i think the connection with other people on a deeper level and not necessarily quantity of people but the quality of the relationship uh, is, is really what we're all seeking. Somebody who truly understands you, relates to you, is interested in you, cares about you, loves you on one level or other. Uh, I think that's really the answer to happiness. Because I know, uh, while I know all the sorts of miserable people with all sorts of trappings of success, I also know people who are not living great lives in terms of their home is beautiful, their wardrobe is endless, and their car is in great condition and all that, who are happy. Hmm. 
how the hell does that work? You know, <laughs> it's such a 180. And I know you you follow what I mean. I mean, these are yeah, people who, who are in loving uh, relationships or familial settings. They feel supported. They feel valued. There you go. There's probably the good word. Valued by other people. And that, uh, you know, I think that's more important than having the, the newest Mercedes Benz or, you know, have the best parking lot on the studio lot, you know, the best parking space. And I've seen people bitch and moan about that. They didn't let drive me through the gate quick enough. They know who I am. Why didn't they just wave me through? <laughs> well, I, there's a thousand possible answers for that. But, you know, I, why would you even be so caught up in such a thing, you know, and the corner office, where's my office, you know, and uh, you see executives, not necessarily in show business, you know, looking for the trappings of, of success. And why would you want the trappings of success? Because you don't feel like a success hmm. somewhere, somewhere on the inside. Okay, that's the sociological, psychological discussion for the day. That's no, no, that's my I love TED it. talk. That's that my is TED that talk. that's that's, that's my absolute favorite part of these things. So, it, would you talk about all of that building relationships? Like, I I truly feel like kind of the existential mentality of, you know, nobody exists for any reason uh, other than the reasons you choose. And mm -hmm. you know, like to me, one of the things I have chosen as my existence is to create real relationships with other humans. You know, have actual human connection with people. Um, and I'm curious, like when I meet somebody else who seems to be somewhat like-minded, it's like, what led you to feeling or to realizing having that epiphany or that realization that relationships really are probably one of the more important things in life? Mm. Where do you think that comes from for you? Well, for me, uh, my family of origin wasn't the most functional. No, daddy wasn't in jail and mommy wasn't, you know, turning what, what's the, I, I don't want to say anything that's offensive here mommy wasn't turning tricks and daddy wasn't robbing people at gunpoint and my brother didn't tie me up and you know threaten me with a knife but it wasn't the, the happiest family it wasn't you know mm. leave it to beaver uh not that anybody is of course very few right. but uh, i think that's where it started for me yearning for oh, yeah, a more supportive more functional whatever that means uh you know uh, embracing uh, accepting accepting family see i wanted to do things with my life career-wise that didn't compute you know for my family it was uh, become a doctor a lawyer a dentist oh my god if you must be an accountant you know that would say <laughs> failure we would talk we would tolerate that if you couldn't get doctor or lawyer you know uh and what i wanted to do is like the equivalent of running away and joining the circus mm. you know the, the entertainment field what do you have your mind you know most people don't succeed all true every reason to argue against your child pursuing mm. a, a job that has uh, a very low threshold or uh, percentage of success you know i might give the same advice uh but i would certainly respect somebody who once they had made their choice to live their life as they wanted to and george burns said i'd rather be a failure at something i love to do than a success of something i don't want to do and now wow okay so uh, uh i learned that mantra early and uh thankfully i don't know what would to, to be knocking on i mean i've had a wonderfully successful careers alternative. I mean, yeah, there are people who could, you know, rattle off credits that, you know, diminish mine, and but that's not a contest. You know, I, I feel very successful getting to do exactly what I want to do, make a, a, a very satisfying living at it and, and uh, live well from it and enjoy uh, the experience. And I'm at an age now where I don't have to work, but I'm just so thrilled from having done this gig 48 hours ago. Uh, it was just so much fun. I enjoy the work. I look forward to the work. I thrive on the work. It energizes me. It, 
uh, it's, it's life affirming. So uh, I'm very blessed to have got to do what I wanted to do and to uh, enjoy it as, as much as I do. But uh, the question you asked was about uh, the importance of supportive uh, relationships, bonds with people. And uh, I think uh, family of origin is where uh, my goal of making those kind of connections started. Mm -hmm. I would, I mean, I it's pretty much the same boat I'm in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, uh, it was something I didn't realize I needed or wanted. And then eventually you, I got a little taste of it and I don't know, it ignited something in me and I've been kind of chasing that ever since. And um, it brings me true happiness to, uh, to meet other people. And there's this concept uh, that I learned from drag queens of all people of the, the concept of chosen family, right? Uh -huh. It's like you may be shunned by one group or just completely ignored, but somewhere out there, there are these people that are your people. And if you find them, you can actually choose to have them, you know, have them be that piece in your life that you were always missing. And I, yeah, yeah. I really, uh, that was one that really resonated with me as well. I like that. You know, I, I'm constantly tempted in our discussion to want to turn the tables and, and start interviewing you because I don't know as much about you as I think I, I would be interested in, in learning. But <laughs> I, I know this is your dime, as they say. So, yeah. you know, Greg, it's, it's, it's your show. So uh, <laughs> you know, if What's I start to turn the tables on you, that would be like, what the hell are you doing? Stop. Well, paying. I like having conversations with people. I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like interviews. I love conversations. I love to hear people talk and when things kind of go off the rails, that's my favorite part. So I always, always hope for that. So, um, something you said, uh, you know, the, the fact that you truly enjoy what you do. And I, I think that's, it's always, to me, it feels really rare and special when somebody who's got a true talent for something and actually finds that thing that um, really highlights their talent and then kind of brings them together. So it's it's you with, um, I guess, I mean, you've done a lot of things. So you, I guess, part actor, part voice actor, uh, part announcer, part radio DJ. I mean, you're, you contain multitudes for sure, but just... Uh, the fact that you truly love and enjoy that and that you get to do it all the time, like that is, that is joyous. It's, I, joyous. it's unbelievable. I'm, I'm so blessed. I'm so appreciative. And the last person I had this conversation with was uh, in, in any kind of depth was Bob Barker. Uh, when I announced the, uh, the Price is Right, he was saying, we were talking about his potential retirement at some point. It was around mm -hmm. his 80th birthday and he uh, stayed on the show for many more years. And he said to me, just to take a side, track uh, detour here he says i know i'd love to stay home for a week or two or three or four and not have to show up he says but i know uh, time would come very quickly i'd be like god i wish i hadn't given that up you know uh and that was the kind of the basis of the conversation about should i retire i'm certainly of an age i'm in a financial play all the reasons to and then again i, I was announcing his 80th birthday mm. on the air you know you're still going strong so uh he said something he said part and parcel of that conversation was, um, I just cannot fathom what it must be like to get up every morning to go to do something you don't like to do. And uh, Barker was so, again, appreciative of his opportunity to do what he always wanted to do, but had real empathy uh, for those, which is the next step. He was, hey, I'm probably very happy with my life. But mm -hmm. to really put himself the next step into somebody else's life, most people's lives, we, he and I, uh, agreed. Uh, I think most people, more than half, get up to go punch the clock, 
of, you know, get, get, getting up to do something you don't want to do. I remember not wanting to go to school, you know, but I never really had a job for a period of time, length of time. I did for in short hauls of doing sales to support myself in, in the early days of trying to, you know, jumpstart a, a career. Uh, oh, my God, did I hate some of those experiences. I, I just, oh, my blood just, you know, boils thinking, oh, my God, did you actually <laughs> sit there and do that? Oh, God, I hated it. Hated going to work. So uh, I forget exactly where my jumping off point was from the, the conversation with that. But uh, Barker was the, one of the more recent people I've spent time talking about really empathizing. Well, what must it be like to get out of bed every day? And these are heroes. You know, I'm not saying these people are how miserable they are I, to get out of bed every day because you've got a mortgage and kids to clothe and, and to put mm -hmm. school and, and the house and all the things that we all face, you know. That, these people are heroes to get up and do that every day as opposed to, I quit, I'm out of this. You know, I'll live under the freeway if I have to. <laughs> uh, you know, I, those are heroes, people who get up and make the world turn. I can't think of many people who, you know, in the jobs that you come across in our daily lives, uh, waiters, uh, chefs, you talk about restaurants, uh, you know, uh, people who stock the grocery shelves at, at the markets. I mean, menial jobs. I can't imagine finding a great deal of fulfillment in those. Yet these are the heroes, the mail carriers, the UPS drivers. I mean, on and on and on. The list is endless. I, I can't see a great deal of creative fulfillment. Oh, you know, the way I carried that box today was, you know, I, uh, it was really fantastic, you know. Uh, uh, these are the heroes though, who get out and, and do, make the world run, not just for their families and their house payments and their kids, but uh, what would the infrastructure be? We'd have nothing if less there were people who are willing, capable and able and get out of bed every day to do mm -hmm. what, what needs to be done. You know, I've noticed uh, in a lot of my life talking to, to folks, you know, I, I guess blue collar, right? Mm -hmm. Guys that work Joe Jobs or, you know, guys, gals, whatever you are in between. Um, and I've noticed a lot of them are happy, you know, and like they are maybe content, maybe content is the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that uh, it took me a little while to figure out that not everybody has these crazy voices in their head that pushes them and pushes them and says, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. You need to go bigger. You need to do more. And more. So there's, there's some people that are just wired differently where you always have to push, always have to be going. But then there are some people that truly are content they just want to go like you said punch the clock come home and watch the football game and drink a beer and then rinse and repeat that is absolutely <laughs> not me to me that sounds like purgatory you know <laughs> but um some people that's you know that's their sweet spot and uh, how wonderful for them it's yeah, not for me but not for yeah. me either not even close but these are the people who make the world go round. and, and I, have, I have neighbors who i'm thinking of in particular who you know have those kinds of lives uh, not to say they're lesser, perhaps they're more so, you know, uh, who just get up and do the business that's at hand and they come home and they're with a loving family and they feel like their life is complete because I guess it's got to be the relationships that they have. It's certainly not the wealth and the bank or the car they're driving, all these other trappings. So it must be the people in their lives uh, that they are either born into or have uh, associated with over time that give them a sense of value and, and, and uh, value. I'll leave it at that. Hmm. Yeah, I've worked uh, plenty of jobs that uh, were miserable, quite literally oh, miserable. Come on, bring it on. I'll, I'll, I'll match you one for one. <laughs> Wait, uh, no, just, I mean, stuff like you'd wake up and then you'd feel sick to your stomach thinking you had to go to work or, yeah. um, you know, I just like for 17 years, I was on call 24 seven. And if my cell phone rang instantly sick, 
because something was on fire. I had nobody else to call. It was just me, right? So it's like scenarios like that. But I feel like that is important. I think everybody should maybe not, maybe not go that far down the rabbit hole, but get a taste of it mm -hmm. to develop some perspective, right? Yeah. So that when you actually do get to some place like you are, like I feel like I am now, where you can really step back and see what great really can be compared to what not so great really is. I mean, it really helps you appreciate things. Very definitely. Completely. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to be great, uh, you know, uh, grateful for. And even if uh, the world doesn't see your life as one that's, uh, that they want to be in, um, I see those people as the heroes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we started this diatribe from your and, and book. And the line at Black Friday? Is that where you're going? Yeah. Back? No, 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 no. From your book. And I was curious, like, what made you, well, the, let's start to start. This isn't your first book. Your first book was about uh, Johnny Olson. And I believe that was one of your mentors, correct? Very much so. Uh, I was a kid, 14, 15, 16. Loved the people I heard on the radio and saw on TV. I mean, when I'll go way back. Uh, when I was, I think, maybe three years old, uh, NBC used to rerun periodically the uh, Peter Pan uh, special that had been done before videotape. They had captured it on Kinescope and used to rerun it. I don't know if it was every year or not, but as a infant, I remember one of my first memories of all time is uh, watching Peter Pan on TV. And then when the show ended, I climbed up on the sofa and jumped off because I wanted to fly like Peter Pan. I'm flying. Look at me in the air. And I, of course, fell flat on my face and started to cry. Uh, and then, as I look back on it, TV was that important to me. Okay, it was an alternate reality. And I, I mm. so much wanted to be in it. I'm going to get choked up and cry. I wanted to be in, the, in that box that the people were always happy in that box. You know, right. you turn on TV, unless you're watching soap operas, which kids don't, you know, uh, everybody's singing and dancing and smiling and telling jokes and there's laughter galore. You know, I wanted to be in that world. So the minute I could get, uh, knew where that world was, which was 30 Rockefeller Plaza in Manhattan, and I grew up in the Bronx, a short subway ride away, uh, I used to cut classes and go down and watch shows tape at NBC. And uh, New Yorkers would pile into a, after standing in line for an hour, pile into a television studio. If it's winter, they got coats and umbrellas and it's just... A New York <laughs> attitude, come on, you're sitting on my coat, you know, or whatever. And uh, finally, uh, when just like the misery is in the air, people are, come on, when's this thing going to start? I've been standing in line. Out comes this guy who goes, <laughs> oh, how's everybody today? And he comes bounding out from the aisle, running up and down the, the aisles, handing out dollar bills, kissing women on the cheek. And in second, I mean, literally seconds, he turned these people 180. You know, suddenly we're, we're all laughing together and having a great time. His name was Johnny Olson. He was the announcer on, on he'd first been a host in the earliest days of television. Going back, he was a host on radio before television. He had a 58 year career. And uh, they culminated with him being the announcer on Goodson Todman television game shows uh, and the like. And uh, his great claim to fame was this audience warm up, which was legendary within the industry. I didn't know that when I was 14, 15, 16, cutting classes. But his ability to whip a room into laughter and just, uh, and he gave me some, well, he was my mentor. I don't want to get too deep into the woods here. I, I used to go into the studios every chance I got, and people want to sit in the middle section to see a show. 
But the announcer at a television game show always is way off to one uh, side or the other, the, the wings, if you will. Hmm. So I could see the microphone stand either extreme left or extreme right as I walked in the studio. And I knew that's where he's going to be. So you could always get a front row seat if you want to be the guy at the furthest extreme, way off to the left or right. You, you're front seat. Nobody watched that because it's way off to the edge. But I could always get that seat and I could sit there and watch him do what he did when he announced, you know, he'd read the, the live copy with, emphasis and enthusiasm and a smile in his voice. And uh, he just, I guess, saw me drooling with my mouth hanging open as a kid. <laughs> uh, and I, I wanted to do that. It just seemed like a wonderful career. It seemed like a wonderful job. He seemed like a wonderful guy. And uh, he used to give me his scripts and go home and uh, read this in a tape recorder, bring the tape back. Now, I don't know if he ever listened to anything I did, but he encouraged me. He had no kids of his own. And he, uh, I guess, in some measure, took a, a you know, a fatherly view of somebody who wanted to follow in his footsteps. So encouraging when he didn't need to be. And uh, mm -hmm. he would stay after the shows and make small talk with me. I'm a punk kid, you know, but he gave me all the time and more than anything else, the encouragement. So I would see him over and <laughs> over again. All right, now I'll speed the story up. So I used to go down periodically and he would encourage me to get a job in radio, which of course I did. And uh, uh, one day, uh, a taping of What's My Line, 1969, was running short. And Dick DeBartolo, the producer, came over and said, we need another contestant for What's My Line. And Johnny said, well, take this kid. He's great. What do you do, kid? Oh, I'm a disc jockey at the college radio station at that point. This was many years into a relationship. And uh, so Johnny put me on television, you know, and, and we used to correspond. He left New York in 1972 because Goodson, Mark Goodson, Bill Todman were remounting an old game show called The Price is Right out in Hollywood. It's the one we now know. It started mm -hmm. in 1972. And Johnny could read advertising copy. You know, if you watch The Price is Right, which I had the thrill of working, it's just, you talk more than the host does. It's just, yes, it's a beautiful, the press on nails, beautiful, I acted hands instantly, we, you know, worried about loose dentures, overfix holes in tight, day and night overfix them, that'll fix them. And rice aroni, the San Francisco treat. Yes, saute and simmer to flavor perfection. You know, blah, 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 blah. And Johnny could do that and not make it sound like a giant commercial. So <laughs> uh, they wanted him for that job. So he left New York in 72. I came out west uh, in my radio career in 1979, and I hadn't seen him in seven years at that point. We had some correspondence back and forth, but I figured it's kind of forgotten. I was a punk kid. Now I'm 20-something, so it's a whole different world. So I went down to CBS shortly after arriving in 1979. He's been out here seven years. And I go down, I'm going to figure I'm going to reintroduce myself to him. Hey, Johnny, I don't know if you remember. Well, Randy, he remembered <laughs> me? I mean, that's insane to me. That's insane. <laughs> Uh, and wow, now we're on a different level. We're going to meals together periodically. Not, you know, I wasn't living in his house, you know, but we, uh, uh, we were friends and he told me every, listen to this, this blows me away. He shared with me everything he does, why he does it, how he does it, the tricks of his trade, if you will. How do you make a room full of strangers suddenly cohesive into like a family, if you will? And he used to use phrases like cousin Bob up there in the high seat saying, now you come down here and you talk to us. I mean, he would make us feel like family. And the thinking behind that, as he explained, is if you go to a movie theater with strangers and something funny happens on the screen, you don't necessarily, ha, 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 ha. you know, you're more subdued because you're among strangers. Hmm. But if you're home in your living room with family, Hey, wow, did you see that? Wow. You're more outgoing, effervescent, enthusiastic, expressive. And those are the things you want from a television audience. So he would break down those inhibitions and how he did that, why he did it. It was fascinating to me. He never got me a job, but he gave me the tools of his trade, which is far mm. more valuable. Um, 
long story, well, it's too, too late to make it short, but I'll try to shorten it. I see him in 79 through 85. He passed away in 85. Hmm. End of story. But in 1999, 14 years later, his wife, Penny, is going into a nursing home. They had no kids, so a, a cousin was called into service to close out the house. I hadn't seen Johnny now in 14 years, as I say. Uh, he's been gone. So the cousin comes to the house and goes through all the things that have been saved by a couple over the years. And there's letters from me in a box. Are you the Randy West who corresponded with Johnny Olson? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get my number? Who are you? Well, we're closing out Penny and Johnny's home. And there were letters that you would he corresponded, apparently. Yes. Well, we're uh, given kinescopes and videotapes to the Wisconsin Historical Society. Other things went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. But there are personal effects here that Johnny saved that really aren't worthy of being, you know, museum quality. But they're his personal would you be interested in giving them a safe home? Obviously, he trusted and valued your, holy jeez, I'll be right over. You know, well, you don't have to come. We'll ship it to you. So came boxes of his Emmy Award and 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 microphones and and paperwork and 58 years of memorabilia and, and uh, ephemera, they call it, uh, you know, personal stuff that was important to him, press clippings, that sort of thing. In it all was an outline of a book he wanted to write about his experience in the business. And uh, it was an outline and two roughly written chapters. And uh, I kept looking at it. Wow, this is fascinating. And how can I return the favor of a career or the tools of the trade? Hmm. I wrote the book that I think he wanted to write, uh, if you will. So that was the, my first idea of writing a book. I never thought of myself as an author, but apparently I did a good job with his basis uh, to work upon. And the uh, publisher contacted me and said, what else you got? <laughs> I never thought I'd be in that position. Hmm. So. Um, uh, the capper on the story, again, is in 1999. They're closing out the house. I get all these materials. In 2003, the phone rings. Randy, this is Roger Dopkowitz at The Price is Right. Uh, Rod Roddy Paz, uh, is ill in the hospital, and we're looking for somebody to do some fill-in. And I'm blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, next thing you know, I'm standing. This is God works in mysterious ways. The universe is uh, some cosmic symmetry in this. But I'm standing in the footsteps where Johnny Olson stood hmm. at his podium, at his microphone, reading his, you know, it's his job, the one he was most noted for over the 58 years of his career. And knowing I was, went down there, I went to the box of things that were from Johnny and there was a CBS ID badge from when he was the announcer on The Price is Right and other things like that. And I brought a couple with me to just to, I don't know, to show to the folks I was working with. They're like, Why, where would you have gotten that from the announcer of the show who's been dead for, you know, 20 years? Where on earth? Hmm. And I, I just told the story. I just feel like this was somehow supposed to be in some weird way, if I could be so assumptive, you know, but there's some certainly symmetry to it, that this guy who befriended me 50 years, 40 years ago earlier, I'm now doing his job at CBS blows me away so that was the idea behind writing a book i wanted to give him a greater uh, immortality if you will you know keep his name alive and and then for anyone who really cared or was interested a place to find out about his life all the way back to his where his grandparents came from i mean he wrote all this stuff about the shipping in norway and, and all his background information and it's all in there so uh there's at least a place to look about what was this guy and who was he Hmm. And uh, that led to me being on television sets. What he gave me, the gift he gave me, gave me a career and uh, brought me to where I am now, which is a very enviable position and uh, 
spurred me on as an author to write this book next. That's awesome. You know, I think, I think that's, you, I think you asked a question somewhere. Yeah, in there. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's such a special interaction. So a kid who never really necessarily had kind of that sense of belonging feeling. And then when somebody sees something in you that maybe you don't even see in yourself, like to me, that's transformative. But then not only that, to kind of foster that, to, to encourage that. And something I think particularly special or sometimes like really, I guess, um, really life-changing for some people is you're always looked at as a child. And at some point, somebody will eventually see you as an adult, right? They'll, they'll see that transition happen. And when somebody does that, because it sounds like you became... I mean, you said friend, but also it sounds like you became a colleague, right? You came, you became a peer of his and to see that transition uh, or have somebody see that transition in you is, I think, so special. Well, to consider myself a peer or colleague is beyond what I, I can wear with, with comfort. That just seems like uh, it's so over. I, I can't imagine. I mean, my respect for this gentleman and those who worked with him yeah. is is extreme. So uh, I'll just say that someone who followed in his footsteps. But you're right. That moment when somebody looks at you, your parents look at you as a kid, even when you're 40, you know, yeah, <laughs> make yeah. sure you put on a winter coat. Yes, mama, they're 3,000 miles away. <laughs> you know, it, well, be careful. Okay. So some parents will see kids as kids forever. But you're right. There's a moment when, uh, and teachers, you know, most of the time that you interact as a child with people, those people will generally see you as a child. But you're right. The first time somebody looks at you and sees a small, adult uh is transformative absolutely mm. and maybe that was among the gifts that he gave me you could actually do this you know yeah you, you can have a career doing this here's what you do and then do this and then do that wow you, as opposed to sit down shut up and do your homework you know hmm. do you feel kind of a a bit of a weight a bit of a gravity to kind of carry that legacy on oh yes the gift that i was given by johnny is uh, immeasurable and those who express interest i'm there all the time uh, for anybody who just wants encouragement, if that's the best I can offer, you know, mm. I'm happy to do that. And uh, some people send me, you know, tapes of their, their or, or ideas about what they want to do uh, to get themselves further in the business. And I'm all ears and will offer whatever advice I can, very definitely. Uh, uh, everyone could benefit so greatly by somebody who is willing to serve as a mentor to whatever extent they can. Because uh, people coming up in a business, I don't care what it is you're doing. I mean, you don't know about it until you watch it, see it, the chance to, I mean, if you want to bake bread for a living, you know, uh, you, you really ought to talk to a baker. What is that life like? And 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 how, how do you know how much yeast is enough? You know, I I guess you could go to school, a culinary institute or whatever, and, and learn those things. But how much better to get it off, the, you know, from the, the hands that were doing that work, someone who was actually in the trenches. You know, you could take a five, people ask me, should I get into a, college communications degree. Well, yes, it's great to have a college degree because that suggests that you uh, have discipline and, and hmm. you know, uh, all, all those character traits. But as far as learning the craft of, of being a broadcaster, uh, there's nothing going to happen in those five years you can't do uh, in six months to a year in the trenches, you know, learning by experience. Yeah. And I've noticed too before, uh, so traditionally, I would never ask anybody for help. I was very, I can figure this out. I can do this. Uh, it wasn't until I got older that I actually came to my senses and realized, I, I guess for me, like I could talk to somebody who has the wisdom, has the experience, and they can convey multiple years of hard learned lessons in the span of a day, you know, 
and it's you just have to take the time to um to be present to actually listen try not to uh talk too much uh, that was <laughs> you know like insert what you think things should be and things like you know just actually like take it in and and absorb it and and the fact that you're so willing to to give give that back i mean it seems like it was um really fundamental kind of in your development uh, that that mentor relationship and i think it's awesome that you're trying to reciprocate that and continue that forward it, it's it's the only thing that I could possibly think of you and I can't imagine denying somebody the opportunity that was given to me. But uh, even on a larger sense, you know, why aren't people uh, in my father's day, they called it apprenticeships. You know, you would mm -hmm. be on the job. I guess now it's interning. OK, but, uh, you know, there should be so much more or could be. I'm, I'm not running the world. I shouldn't be saying what should be. But <laughs> be, I am running the world, at least for the next 10 minutes. OK, listen, people, if you have a job that other people want to do, take them under your wing. It doesn't mean you have to spend the rest of your life teaching them, but let them come see you, shadow you, I guess is the term they use now, you know, and come and see what that life is like let them learn you know give them a pearl of wisdom from your experience it costs nothing and in fact uh, it's quite complimentary of you if somebody thinks that you do what it is you do so well that they want to watch you and learn from you well that's a you know that's that's a that's a positive i would be accessible i can't imagine that even in college programs where you know colleges tend to be you know academia you know, we teach the theory behind the things, but at the same time, you could bring I, my experience. I do speak at colleges and I, I don't know why there isn't more of that. Bring in somebody to speak to a group of people who want to pursue whatever it is that you're doing. Yes, teach all the academia of it, you know, the, the, the theory and all. But it's, uh, when it comes right down to it, what's that life like and how do you do that? And how do you get into it and how do you get better at it? Those are missing links, I think, in a lot of. Uh, colleges and universities where they're training people for a life in a field where it's it's not a complete training unless you actually show some firsthand what's that really like as opposed to something in a textbook. Yeah, you know, I I had uh, a very interesting conversation about two weeks ago. Um, I enjoy teaching, and there's a local mm -hmm. university here, and uh, I have the the great blessing, I guess, is, is a word you've used so far, um, to be able to go out there and help with some different programs and stuff like that. Wow. And uh, I have some online education stuff. And then part of their curriculum is actually they get assigned some of my stuff. Like, I, like oh, to right. me, it's it's really cool. And so I asked about, you know, the adjunct professor thing. Well, I have a day job. I do have some time in between. And I don't know. There's just something about a room full of young adults that actually want to be there. And are mm -hmm. truly interested in and in, you know learning this thing to transfer that information. It just it feels amazing. It makes me feel young too to be surrounded yeah, by all those young very people. Very much so. Very but much uh, so. they uh, they told me unless you have a master's or a doctorate, it's not really going to happen. They said really it breaks down to we're in the business of selling people these pieces of paper, and so mm -hmm. you kind of have to have the piece of paper. If but also <laughs> I've noticed a lot of the people that. Like I've got over 20 years experience in the industry I'm in and uh, a lot of the people teaching, you know, in the field at that university have little to no experience. And so it's, yeah, you know, it's like at some point I feel like you should make a compromise as far as that stuff goes. When I was in college, uh, I asked about, you know, why isn't there more hands-on preparation for the work that we're looking to do here in addition to all the uh, you know, the background in academia, I keep calling it, but uh, I like that word today. Um, and they say, oh, that's, that's for trade schools. I'm like, excuse me? 
You know, if you're actually touching anything, that's a, a sphere of, of education that's uh, we think of as being trade school. I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, so you want to teach me how to, I don't know, how to edit videotape through a book? I mean, wouldn't it be better if you just sat me down and <laughs> showed me what button to push or in the old days use a razor blade? Uh, you know, wouldn't that be far? Well, no, that, that's trade school. Okay. Hmm. So yeah, there is a prejudice against that. And, and you're right. You, uh, people with a real life experience, I'd rather have real life experience than a piece of paper on the wall that says I'm I'm qualified and whatever the heck it is. And uh, even if you're not a full time professor, there's certainly value to what you can bring to a classroom. Certainly, even if you don't have the great credentials. And I do know some people uh, I'll name drop Bob Bowden, uh, former head at uh, CBS Daytime. Uh, he has a class, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but uh, uh, at Syracuse University, I think is the school that uh, they come out to California from upstate New York and learn with him uh, about the business. I don't think, I, I'm almost certain he doesn't have a master's, but he has life experience that is part of what this college offers these undergraduates, some exposure to some real world. So yeah, there, there's hope for you yet <laughs> in a, the ability to uh, just have your experience uh, take you know be seen as valuable in, in in college. Yeah, I don't know. I just uh, I feel like it's fallen out of uh, fashion. Maybe like kind of the apprentice apprenticeship thing. I know it still exists in some trades, like uh, electricians, right? right? They do kind right. of apprenticeship, and uh, I've seen some people in like plumbing do that as well, but. It seems like the rest of life is just uh, doesn't really exist. So I don't I don't really find people seeking that out. I have mentored a, a handful of people, and really? I'm I'm mentoring some people right now. But Great. I don't know. It's just uh, I really wish that opportunity was available to me when I first got in there. Of course, I don't think I was in the headspace uh, to listen to anybody else because I was <laughs> such a knucklehead back then. But um, you know, maybe if the opportunity was there, I would have a bit for the right person. I don't know, right? Who knows? Who's to say? But that book led you to, well, I guess, I guess that that opportunity meeting Johnny led you into the industry and you did a lot of radio. I, I Didn't you do like some musicals as well? Yeah, I, uh, I the joke is, you know, I'm not an actor and I have several performances to prove it. Uh, but <laughs> I was cast, for example, I was working on the, the CBS sitcom, The Nanny and uh a former uh, singer-dancer of short stature uh, was a stand-in for one of the children on the show. Just, you know, because they sort of matched size and, you know, uh, and but he had a great theatrical background. And he said, we're casting uh, the Mikado, the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, and you'd be great in the role of Poobah. You know, the guy, the supercilious, pontificatory, uh, grand master of all things. Uh, and I said, uh, well, I can I'm, see that. I'm, not, I'm not an actor, you know, uh, I said, well, no, no, really, you're, you have a natural affinity. Can you sing? I said, I sing karaoke. You know, I, I don't have a trained <laughs> voice. He said, well, come with me and we're going to meet the director. So he took me hand in hand to meet this director. And of course, he said, do you sing? Uh, what do you sing? I said, well, I left my heart in San Francisco. He said, well, his heart just dropped because he says, no, the, this is theatrical. You sing. Broadway show tunes or, or light opera when you're auditioning for this kind of work. I said, I don't know. Any. I'm sorry. I don't know. Any. All right. We'll sing it. I left my heart, which is loungy as opposed to 
but he saw in me the ability to carry a tune and, and expre be expressive in the lyrics, et cetera, et cetera. So I had uh, the, the building blocks. So long story short, I got cast in a national tour of the Mikado, working with people who are actual actors who have, have trained and studied and worked. And that was magnificent experience because just by doing, I learned so much. And I did that with a few other shows as well. But I'll, I'll give you a funny story. So I am not an actor and everybody in the place knows it. I mean, I made it very clear. <laughs> I'm struggling to memorize these lines. I'm struggling to, to get the right, uh, you know, the, the meaning behind them to, you know, express them properly. And, and stage movement, my God, you know, when you have to block a scene, you know, you go here, this goes there, the second, okay, great. All this is in my head. I'm like, I'll never get this. I'll never get this. So I'm really working hard. And everybody's being very, very uh, accommodating and, and supportive. And, and uh, uh, except uh, one of the guys who I thought was my best friend, he played Nanky Poo in the show. And our first, my scene, first scene is on stage, him, he and I alone. And he's been at every rehearsal. He's been standing here and I've been standing here and we have this correspondence. And then on such a line, a particular moment, he goes over here and I go over here. OK, that's what I learned. I got it. I mean, it's like I'm ready to do it mechanically in my mind. It's robotic as opposed to organic, which it would be if I were truly an actor. Hmm. So we get on stage. First real performance. That's the, no longer rehearsing. There's an actual audience there. I'm here. He's here. And suddenly he walks over here at a time when he's not supposed to walk. <laughs> I'm like, and I remember to this day going, holy, what do I do now? And I know it, I don't know why, but it doesn't seem right to have two people on the same side of the stage talking to each other. I don't know why that just seemed wrong because we were here a moment ago, now he's here. So I went over here <laughs> because it just seemed like the thing to do. I don't know why it turned out to be the right thing to do, but I didn't know that. So I went, it became a chess game. So then he went, up here and then i walked over to here and he's just I, I, when we got through with that thing and walked off stage i said ah i used words i won't share with you now you know i'm dying here what the are you trying to do to me <laughs> i'm trying to make you an actor I'm like wow you know but at that moment i you know almost lost the stain on the on the stage you know just like what are you doing to me i'm so <laughs> over my head in this thing to begin with and you walked over here now what do I, i'll walk over here and I, by the we thank the graces, whatever, there was some in, instinctive sense of what to do. And I walked away with that going, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I learned something right then and there. So um, it was fascinating to be thrown in over your head, uh, you know, with a safety net. I wasn't going to die on stage. Somebody would have like, fell down and passed out. Somebody probably would have picked me up and carried me off. And people would have thought maybe it was part of the show, but uh, thrown in the deep end of the pool. And what a great experience uh, in retrospect. Was that your first time to really uh, travel around doing performances kind of thing? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was one before that. I did some uh, other traveling show. I, no, I guess that was the first. Yeah. And uh, life on the road is, is, is fascinating. But it's it's uh, it's not glorious. It's not uh, <laughs> the glamour is on the, uh, the living room side of television. The glamour is on the audience side of the stage, very definitely. But uh, I, I enjoyed it and did other traveling shows. Uh, when I was on stage at the Price is Right, a gentleman came up to me from the audience who said, "Hi, I work with Fremantle. Uh, I want and he introduced himself. We're starting a live version of the Price is Right. It's going to travel around the country to large arenas. And would you be interested in doing that work?" Now, the first rule of game of television of show business is never say no can you ride a horse yes 
you know, can you do open heart surgery? Yes. Do you want it to go on a show? Yes, I want to be in that show. Uh, there's always a chance to say no later, but you don't want to close opportunities. So I said yes and heard nothing for months. And then one day the phone rang. It's like, uh, hi, this is, uh, uh, I don't know if he was, Andy Felsher. And uh, we, we met at Price is Right and we're doing this stage show. Would you like to travel with us? And it was like, wow. So we played uh, Vegas and Atlantic City and Reno and Tahoe and 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 and, and, and. a lot of it was on a what they call a bus and truck, which the Mikado was as well. You do your show, you get on the bus, you go to the next town. The 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 teamsters load the truck, and uh, then they unload it the next day and load it again and unload it. And, uh, you see the world, but not a lot of time to really engage in it because you're mostly on the road or in a hotel room trying to catch up on sleep and. Uh, uh, but fascinating, you know, I didn't have the college dorm experience, but living with a troop of people in such close proximity uh, gave me a sense of what that college dorm life kind of was. Well, I guess, uh, like, as far as uh, performances go as well, you saw where you were kind of a small part in a big production. And then with The Price is Right, I mean, you are the focal point. You are the center of that universe. You're the sun that everything revolves around. Like, <laughs> what's that? What's that juxtaposition like? Well, I, 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 the star of the show is the star. You know, people always say to me as the announcer, don't you want to host the show? And the answer to that is no, thank you very much. Johnny Olson uh, did most of his uh, most successful work uh, as the number two. It's great to be number two. You don't carry the burden. You know, if, you're a host <laughs> of a, if you're a host of a television show and you do three shows that fail, you're done. You're finished because they don't know who to place it on. But uh, doing what I do, I'll work forever uh, just because I'm obviously not the reason a show succeeds or fails and if i perform to the expectation or beyond of what people want i'll be there forever so uh i i, I disagree with the idea that i'm the, the center of the focus but for the at the top of the show the announcer does the audience warm-up so there's 20 mm -hmm. minutes where i am the focus of the show but most of that isn't about me i'm not singing and dancing la i'm uh <laughs> that was for the uh the drag queen comment you made yeah absolutely uh you know it's a it's a great thrill to be center stage and have people uh you know uh, applaud uh, the laughs that you're getting and that sort of stuff and uh, i was so successful for 18 years with the price is right live on and off uh that i just kicked off part of the wheel of fortune live show that sony has mm. now traveling the country and agree if you love these shows which most americans do uh, the primetime, the syndicated uh, nighttime Wheel of Fortune is now in its 40th season. The Price is Right in its 50-something season. Some people never know life on the planet without these shows on their television. They're so beloved. And people tell me, oh, I used to watch this show with my grandmother. You know, there's a beyond just the show itself, it carries uh, such uh, emotional impact for a lot of people. And it's a thrill. It's an honor to be representing, representing, yo, uh, to be, uh, you know, part of the legacy of, of hit television shows like that. So uh, I thoroughly enjoy that, yeah. So it sounds like you just like being a performer, whether it's on stage, on TV, like it doesn't really matter for you, huh? You just like yeah. being performing? Yeah, I, get, I mean, right, uh, my first reaction to that is, well, this guy must be narcissistically disordered or he needs to be the center of attention. And I don't <laughs> see it that way, I, I really don't. Uh, if I can raise, this is gonna sound perhaps, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, insincere, but it is from my heart. Uh, if I can get people out of themselves into 
a great mood where they're laughing and escapist, uh, that's a thrill. And I didn't really understand exactly what it was about that till somebody's, I was joking. I said, yeah, well, that's what I do for a living, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't cure cancer, you know, making light of what I do, stand and tell jokes and say funny things and read scripts, you know. Uh, and they said, and you don't understand. I said, what do you mean? Well, you're onto something when you say you change the mood because think about the 330 seats at the Price is Right. Uh, let's take a sample, a random audience. Out of the 330, I, I guarantee you five of those people have cancer and know it. And another 12 probably have a family member who's dying of one disease or another. Hmm. And 17 of them are out of work and, and nine of them are estranged from their husband, wife, child, whatever. A lot of misery in the world. And if you're able to take them out of that for an hour or whatever, that's a gift, buddy. That's a gift. That's a, a service. It's, you know, and I started to think about that as I stood in front of an audience, which one of these people has cancer? I mean, I always want to cry because it's such a terrible thing to think about. I, hmm. I don't know if you've ever lived with somebody or, or family member battling their, their final days. Uh, but if you could take them to a show like that and they could just be out of that world, that misery, for an hour, that's a gift. I mean, people will do all sorts of drugs and, and hypnosis and, and psychology, you know, the, the psychiatric, anything to get out of the misery of their moment. And if I can do that just by standing up and being a goofball, uh, that's a wonderful piece of uh, contribution to society. I'll, I'll frame it in such highfalutin terms. So yeah. there's great value in, in what I do that I didn't really embrace. So when you say I like to stand up in front of people and perform, well, yes, I was class clown. And I guess some of that is part of who I am, but there's so much more to it than just, hey, look at me, I'm the center of attention. Uh, a whole lot more than that. And anyone who's actually doing the jobs that I do, who's up there thinking, look at me, I'm the center of attention, you're not doing the job because that's not what the job is. The job of, of entertaining uh, in a television studio is to, as we talked about with Johnny Olson before, uh, trying to take this crowd of strangers and have them uh, bond and, and re release their inhibitions and react as one because you want the host of the show to be well received. Uh, so there's method to the madness. It's not just, hey, look at me, I'm telling a joke now. Or it's, there's a reason for all of it. Hmm. Yeah. And when I think of performing, like up on a stage performing, so in my uh, current occupation, I consider when I'm in front of a group of people, a, a performance. Like I feel like I'm performing. It's, it's not what most people would assume or associate with a performance, I would think. But I know the feeling it gives me when I'm up there and I'm, doing the thing it's 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 like um i don't know it feels like a like a like i'm riding a wave or it's a smooth sort of dance or you know it just feels like like a graceful ballet like i don't know inside me the feeling it gives me when i'm performing uh is something i don't find anywhere else in my life and so i assume when i say you just like performing you like being there in that moment. And I'm, I'm assuming there's some feeling associated with it for you, right? Well, uh, yes, very definitely so. Uh, it heightens my awareness of what's going on. You know, I might be in conversation with you and, and uh, search for a word uh, that I'm looking for, whatever. But there's something about being on with that adrenaline rush that I, I feel omnipotent, you know. I, I, uh, uh, I'm able to perform at a level, and I don't mean performance just in a uh, show business sense, you know, perform, be, uh, behave, to be uh, snapping on all cylinders. I'm, I'm at a level that I'm not normally in, in regular life. Uh, 
there's an adrenaline rush that I'm sure is part of that. And it just quickens your wits. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I like being in that zone. Okay. It's, it's a heightened awareness. Uh, you know, somebody over here is uh, reacting and someone over here out of my peripheral vision is not. I mean, I can see the whole room and uh, I'm hyper aware of things. And uh, that that condition, that that I don't know, that rush, for lack of a better term, uh, is fascinating to me. It's like surfing was the word you used before. It's like I'm, I'm in the zone man, and it's it's a great feeling that you can't get anywhere else. It, uh, and I love that. I'm, I'm uh, I feel very. See, I hate to use words like powerful because it sounds like it's an ego thing, but I feel <laughs> powerful within myself. You know, I, I'm, I'm clicking on all cylinders. I'm not powerful over you. I'm powerful about my existence in the world right now. Yeah. 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 Hey, it's so funny. Like you're very careful to make sure that, um, that it doesn't seem like you're being narcissistic or, or ego driven. For me, I realized the only thing I have to convey the way I feel are words and I try to use whatever one is the most specific. Like I am, I am never going to assume you're uh, narcissistic or egotistical because uh, I've also noticed through this conversation how giving you are and how uh, not just of like your time doing the mentorship, but giving of your time here. Like to me, that's the most precious commodity we have in life is time. And the fact that you're giving it to people to me says uh, so much. So. Uh, don't overthink the, the okay. those words. Like whatever. Well, I know a whole I know a whole bunch of narcissistic <laughs> jerks. Uh, not necessarily, particularly those on the cover at the moment, because some of these people are are, are wonderful people. Uh, yeah. I see Jay Leno's face there. Not at all narcissistic. A, a, a dear man to work with. So this isn't all a bunch of uh, lowlifes. <laughs> Ed Asner, God bless Ed Asner. I mean, uh, so I don't want to throw everybody in the, in the same swimming pool here. But uh, I've met. So when I point to the book, it's not necessarily one of the people you're looking at. But in that book, I've met dozens of people that are so into the ego and narcissism that I, I so uh, uh, hyper aware of wanting to distance myself from that. I've seen, I've seen men, <laughs> I've seen people at their worst and uh, yeah. please, that's not me. <laughs> well, you definitely live in a different world than I think uh, most everybody else does. So yeah, I, I get it. Like the, the sphere that you operate in, I'm sure colors the way you kind of perceive the world and, and the people around you. So uh, at least that's what I hear kind of about. Uh, I, I had some friends that lived in LA for a while and uh, they said, sometimes it's tricky to find like a, a person you can make a real connection with. Cause you're like, you think you're like good and solid with this person. And then, you know, they're just, they're gone the next day and it's kind of weird. Well, if, nowadays it's not so much true, but it has been over time that nobody's born in LA. I mean, it's a, it's a place where people come to, to, to i don't know to be someone that they weren't earlier and uh it's very transient because you come here for uh, in many cases for a reason and most of those people don't find their dreams fulfilled and then leave so it is very transient and uh few people have family or roots here so there is a very definite in la kind of vibe uh, as far as forming relationships here yeah hmm well, while we're talking about TV and LA and all that stuff, I, uh, I know that you are, and this is actually how I found you because I was looking for like a TV historian. Oh. Um, and I don't know if you would consider yourself that or uh, we went back to that kind of keeping the legacy alive of all that stuff. But I've seen you've done a lot of work, like you were asked to help with the establishment of the new uh, National Archives of Game Show History. And then you do like Facebook posts, like you were talking about earlier. I think it's like almost every day you have some every kind day. of like interesting little tidbit of like TV history. And yeah. it sounds like you've definitely made it kind of a personal mission to 
keep this stuff alive. And I'm curious why that's so important for you. It, very simple. It was that important to me as, as, a, as a kid, uh, first of all, you know, uh, watching what went on in that television was magic. And television is such a throwaway, uh, you know, there are very few museums that, uh, you know, specialize in cataloging television shows. Uh, and, and those who, uh, the museums who do do that have so few visitors that they have uh, closed down their LA branch, frankly. Uh, so um, I, I, television plays a great role in a lot of people's lives. It's, it's mm. our number one entertainment, I think. You know, you come home, you put on the TV. Some people have it on six, seven, eight hours a day, but all of us use it to some extent, uh, mostly for entertainment, more so than news, I think, in the, in the total hours spent. Uh, yet it's so disposable. Where did it go? You know, well, now more than ever, there, you can dial up on, you know, on demand shows that you want to see, uh, streaming channels and all that. That was never the case for anyone under the age of 20 who wasn't always like this. Uh, you know, you saw a television show back in whenever. It was like, wow, I'd love to see that again, but I know I never will. Uh, and there's some great moments that we associate in our lives. You know, it's the soundtrack of our lives. Gee, I remember that show. I was in college then or I was dating so-and-so. You know, it, it kind of marks uh, the moments in our lives. Uh, so it's so expo uh, disposable that it needs to have a little permanence. And uh, I just love uh, knowing that keeping it alive and knowing there are other people who share that passion. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Mm. But I, I, by default, you'd have to call me a TV historian because I, I've got millions of posts all over uh, social media about television history and the books that I, uh, that are writer are, you know, full of history, even if it's a current subject or a person who's currently uh, in discussion, the background of people of factors into it as well. Their, their histories. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's um, it's a very nostalgic thing. So I think back to, uh, I grew up with kind of a single mom. She worked multiple jobs. So I spent a lot of time at my aunt's house and they were always watching Nick at Night. So I grew up watching, you know, wow. All in the Family, I Love Lucy, you know, all that stuff. And so whenever I kind of think of that stuff, it sort of takes me back to this sort of like these, these quiet, calm places in my life. You know, it wasn't yeah. always like that, but... Sort of takes you back to those little, and it, it was, it was escapism. And, uh, I think, uh, a lot of my love of comedy and things like that, and kind of, uh, the quick wit, like you talk about whenever you're in the zone, like your brain starts firing, mine gets really fast. Like I, I can, I could say one liners really quick and I pick up on stuff really fast. And, uh, that was always kind of the, the stuff I admired in a lot of, uh, sitcoms back in the days that somebody would say something and they would have a quick retort back. And it was just, just the, the perfectly placed thing. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, I would assume part of that it, for you, it sounds like is is definitely nostalgia. And I, I would say that's what probably keeps people interested in the kind of the television history piece, huh? Yeah, uh, as you say, it's, it's, it's so wrapped up in our memories of, of uh, childhood and previous experiences, family members and all that kind of stuff. But as an industry also, you know, they throw away a, a television show wraps. A lot of people don't can't grasp this idea. And uh, when a television show is finished, everything goes in the trash. Hmm. Uh, the Family Feud television show, where they used to ask, uh, going back now to Richard Dawson and Ray Combs, uh, names, name, uh, uh, name your uh, favorite fruit pie, you know, apple. And of course, we go, blah, 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 apple. Let's see, survey said, bling, 29. Okay. You've got this blackboard with a high impact uh, yellow letters on it that spell out what's just been said, you know, technology to do that and then reveal the answer on, on demand uh, so, so uh, advanced at the time when they were doing this in the 70s, it cost a quarter of a million dollars 
to have that board custom built. It's called a flip dot display. It was done by the Ferranti Package Company up in Toronto. It was a very custom thing. And of course, when the show went off and then they decided they would bring it back with different technology, that thing was going in the garbage. Wait a minute. <laughs> that's, been center stage. that's been center stage from 1976 through into the 90s. And it's just going to throw, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's obsolete. And we don't store things. You know, the, the set from I Love Lucy has been long trashed. Hmm. I mean, there are recreations of it in Jamestown, New York now, et cetera, at museums and stuff. But the original just it all gets thrown away. I saved that board along with other things and now have given it to the museum that is operating the archives of television game show history. So it will exist in further perpetuity and they're fixing it up so that it can actually play the game with people who come to visit. Oh, museum, that's awesome. Which would be fun. Uh, you know, but all this stuff just goes bye bye. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems kind of sad because, it, again, it's, not, it's more than hardware. It's more than just hardware. Yeah. yeah. It seems like we live in a disposable society now. Like everything is, uh, what do they call it, planned obsolescence? Like it's the yeah. idea that it's going to break down in a very short amount of time. And uh, I just got told by uh, whoever it is, I guess it's Microsoft, that there's no more support for my uh, Windows. That's it. We're done. It's, it's an earlier Windows. I've had this, I built, I bought a great computer at the time and figured I don't want to have to buy another one every year. But apparently I'm in the minority because they're not even going to support it anymore. Wait a minute. You know, it's still working fine. I'm talking to you on it, you know. <laughs> but it's, I have to throw it away because they won't update or, you know, protect or whatever is going to go haywire with it shortly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I love uh, I love when I see spaces, especially like I think um, I'm a big fan of architecture when I see like mm -hmm. older architectural buildings kind of maintaining that original feel. But then they can change some of the some some of the inners and, and kind of revitalize them, bring it back yes. to life. Like to me, I love marrying kind of the the old with the new to to make something that will last. I, uh, yeah, I really knock down that. buildings like crazy. It's, it's so sad. I just came back from. Uh, Augusta, Georgia, and the whole downtown is like, you know, 100 year old buildings. And it's very cool. I don't know what they've done on the insides of them. But uh, it's just lovely to see, you know, some, uh, some architecture as opposed to the big glass box or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, I worked in, um, in, a, in an old downtown kind of in a previous life. And we had an old bank building from, I think it was the 1890s. And mm -hmm they upgraded the interior to be a data center full of servers. So just, oh, wow. I mean, I can't think of a more marrying of kind of old architecture with brand new technology. It was, yeah. it was a really fun uh, environment to be in. A lot of exposed brick and uh, high ceilings. I don't know, I feel more creative in those spaces. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, we're all jammed in, going back to the airline conversation of earlier, you know, we're all crammed in. If you work in an office, cubicles, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just wonderful to have some air. Wow. You know, even if it's above your head, it's just high ceilings. It's some breathing room. It, I think it really does impact you psychologically, you know, whether you're hemmed in or feel constrained or not. Hard to be creative and free thinking if you're sitting like this hmm. in a way. For sure. I'll tell you what, uh, Randy, we have, I have occupied way too much of your time. And right here towards the end, I usually like to say, is there any specific thing you would like to plug? Obviously your books or any uh, social medias or anything else. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like people or any specific ways you'd like people to interact with you on the internet? How would you have them do that? Yeah, I'm all over the place. Uh, TVRandyWest.com, TVRandyWest.com. 
send me an email, send me a picture, <laughs> ask me a question, or uh, tell me what you're doing. It's all good. I'm fully accessible. And you've already been very generous with my ability to, to plug the book. So uh, <laughs> that's also at tvrandywest.com and every place else that's online and selling books. But buy it from me and I can inscribe it to you if you're interested in what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, there you go. Yeah, and I would also say if you are a Facebook user, your Facebook posts, your daily ones are really interesting and it is varied. It's, I mean, it is like it's daily or nearly daily. Yeah. Yeah. Every chance, every day, pretty much every chance I can. Yeah. And it's always something different and interesting. And so I really enjoy Thank you. it. Yeah. Well, I, um, I never quite know what to expect when I go into a conversation, but you were so open, so honest, so willing to talk about just anything. And, uh, I really admire, uh, how much time you are giving to people even weirdos on the internet that just uh <laughs> holler at you out of nowhere i really appreciate it uh, greg it was uh, uh, very pleasant you know i've done some podcasts with people you know what's your favorite color and all that but uh, it was really uh interesting and and enjoyable to be in an actual conversation it's a dying art <laughs> the, the dialogue with you is a, a very a positive experience and pleasantly surprising frankly my expectations were not in place close not because i misjudged you i didn't know you so yeah uh, for sure I, i'm glad it's, it's a new friendship and i really enjoyed to talk to you absolutely thank you <laughs>